wasn't a whole lot happening between Major League Baseball's owners and players through this ongoing lockout, but there does appear to be at least the perception of momentum toward punishing owners who don't spend very much. Good morning to you. Good Friday morning. I'm Dayan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Pirates. Comes your way bright and early every weekday. If you're into football and or hockey, I also offer up Daily Shots of Steelers and Penguins where you found this. Understand, please, that when it comes to reporting on this lockout, Almost all of the leaks and the information that makes it to the reporters who are assigned to covering this, most of them national types, will emanate from the union side and specifically agents. So in turn, almost all of what makes it into headlines is going to be coming at you with a distinct player-friendly, union-friendly bias. That's just how this goes. Take that from someone who did this once with the NHL's lockout in 2004 and then another that that league had a few years later. Owners can be fined up to $1 million for talking, and that scares the living daylights out of everyone in those buildings. You don't get anything from their side. You get everything from the agents who don't have any reason whatsoever to be quiet about anything. That said, most of the recent reporting on this, in particular in the later part of the week, has focused on how it's the players who stand to gain the most from this contract, how it's the players who've been wronged in recent years and how the owners are going to stand their ground and not give up all that much. That, my friends, is all you need to know about the bias that's involved here. It wasn't the players that initiated the lockout. It was the owners. And the owners didn't initiate the lockout because they're worried they have to give too much back. They initiated the lockout for a reason. Eventually, we're going to see what that reason is. The other component that's emerged is that competitive balance could be addressed by simply punishing owners who spend below a certain threshold, like fining them, taxing them. There's already a competitive balance tax in place so you would think that'd make it easier to cross any sort of philosophical divide. There's competitive balance tax at one end. You could have one at the other, where owners who spend, I'm just going to throw out the number that came out in the owner's original proposal, less than $100 million, instead of helping them, you tax them, you punish them. You say, hey, you're below this line, we're going to charge you X amount of dollars because we don't believe that you're spending everything that you could. Does that seem reasonable to anybody? Does that seem fair? This portion of Daily Shot of Pirates is brought to you by our friends at North Shore Tavern. That's directly across Federal Street 
from PNC Park. It's home of Steak on a Stone, an eating experience, underscoring the word experience. The steak is brought to you partially cooked on an 800-degree stone, and you do the rest. It's a ton of fun, it's a great meal, and it's a baseball atmosphere like no other in Pittsburgh. North Shore Tavern, right across Federal Street from PNC Park. If you're a regular listener to this show, it'd be easy to think that I'm pro-owner or I'm, uh, you know, taking the side of the owners or even specifically within Pittsburgh, Bob Nutting. And it would be, as I've stated, completely wrong. My only interest, my only stance that's been taken through this lockout is that baseball needs to emerge with some form of salary cap type system. I've never expected for a single day that you'd have some hard cap put in place like what we have in the NFL and the NHL, and to an extent, the NBA. The NBA kind of modifies it with a with a luxury tax system that's softer, but it's still a cap-type system. And my reasoning for that, plain and simple, is that it would help baseball in Pittsburgh. And since the players and their agents, specifically Scott Boris, would never go along with that, I've looked at the side of the owners and said, this is the one that's the likeliest path. Couldn't care less who wins and who loses and that sort of thing. But if your perception of what I've been saying is that I'm on the side of the owners, then this might surprise you. I'd be completely in favor of punishing owners who spend less than $100 million. 1,000% in favor of this. This has been presented by some national media types as some rocket science new idea. Wow, look at this. Those owners wag the finger at the Baltimores and the Pittsburghs and the Tampas and so forth because they're cheapskates who whatever else. Look, go nuts. Go nuts. Make that your rallying cry because you know what that is? If that gets implemented, do you know what that is? I do. It's a salary cap type system. Anytime you have a ceiling and a floor, regardless of how it's enforced or what terminology is applied to it, it's a cap type system. There's already a tax on teams that spend beyond a certain threshold. This past season, that really only applied to the Dodgers a tiny bit to the Padres. But it held other teams, notably the Yankees, the Mets, the Angels, others that spend in that range, it held them below that ceiling. So there's already, there's already one at that end. If you put one in at the other end, that is a cap-type system right there. You can call it Fred for all you want. Give it a name. It's still a cap-type system. And let me get a little more specific as it relates to Pittsburgh. The Pirates in 2015 and 2016 crossed over $100 million in payroll. By every account, including their own, 
They were a profitable franchise. They did not lose money in those years. That tells me that even five years ago, the Pirates could have afforded to be at a $100 million payroll. Since then, national revenues and revenue sharing have only increased. The TV contracts have gone up. The internet money has gone wacko. So the Pirates can absolutely afford to be at $100 million in any given year. If you are to take at face value what they're saying now, which is that they're, oh, you know, rebuilding at a certain level and, you know, theoretically setting money aside so that once all these prospects that we talked about on yesterday's show make it to Pittsburgh, they can be affordable and kept for many years and all that other stuff. If you buy all that, great. But if something gets put into place that forces the Pirates to spend $100 million in any given year and avoid just casually dropping 101 losses on their fan base while they're bringing these prospects along, then you're completely in favor of this. How could you not be? How could you not be? What would be the harm? If somewhere along the way, Major League Baseball works out a deal with the players that punishes, again, whatever word you want to use there, punishes sounds really harsh, fines, taxes, whatever, okay? But it's it's ultimately a punishment. It's a, it's a threat. It's a thing that says if you're going to spend below this amount, then you're going to have to pay for it. If that were to happen, yes, it would be a really, really, really good thing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. So go nuts. Go nuts. Label it whatever you want to. Justify it however you want to. But put into place something that resembles behaves like a cap system. When we come back, just one question. Welcome back. Time for just one question. And today's comes from Brandon Underwood, who asks, what's the long-term plan at first base? Mason Martin, Henry Davis, another converted outfielder, or none of the above. Brandon, the easiest way to answer any question about the future of first base for any organization at any level is don't worry about it because first baseman can materialize out of thin air, as you yourself seem to suggest, by acknowledging that Davis, a number one overall pick, could, that's could, move there from catcher. You can always, always teach someone to play first base as Scott Hatterberg showed us in Moneyball. Now, that said, your question is a valid one because there really doesn't appear to be anybody lining up there other than Martin. And let's remember that Martin was to be exposed to the Rule 5 draft out of Altoona before, you know, the Rule 5 draft never came off because of the lockout. There's going to have to be a Rule 5 draft at some point before play resumes because all these players who were exposed at all levels were just kind of left hanging there. Uh, Lots of uncertainty, by the way, when it comes to roster statuses for players like that, uh, including Martin. Like, what is he? If there is no Major League Baseball, If the lockout extends into the summer and we have minor league ball, you can't just blank those guys out, you know, 
Uh, they have to be able to play. So I guess you would presume that they would go back to their previous team since they haven't been claimed yet, but I, I can't know that. At any rate, Martin is a power hitter who has uh, light tower roller coaster level power. And that's what you would call it in Blair County, where the coaster is out there beyond right field. Uh, he can annihilate the ball. He also can strike out <laughs> two out of every three times up. So there's work to do as far as having him be major league ready, to say the least. Uh, it's not just a matter of being able to hit the ball a mile. If it was, Brad Eldred would be in the Hall of Fame, like first ballot Hall of Fame. The other question that works its way into this is the DH. We're all presuming that the National League will have the DH for 2022. We have no reason to presume that it won't at this point, but it's still not in play. And if it isn't in play, officially, then Yoshi Tsutsugo has to be your first baseman in Pittsburgh. Now, I understand you asked about the future, but, you know, Yoshi's 30 years old, and if he's hitting a zillion home runs and the Pirates find a way to keep him, then he would be the future. But really, after that, I just wouldn't worry about it. I, I wouldn't think about first base as a position that you need to take care of, unless there's someone in the minors who is already so defensively limited that you know they're not going to be able to play anything other than first once they get to the majors. The Pirates really don't have that profile of a prospect. But if they did, that's who you'd be looking at. Otherwise, the field is wide open. It could be an outfielder. It could be another infielder. It could be a catcher. It could be anybody showing up at first base. That's one of the reasons why you very rarely hear any discussion about prospects or a prospect pool where someone projects first base because someone just ends up moving there. I appreciate the question. I appreciate everyone listening to Daily Shot of Pirates, not just today, all week long, uh, all forever long. It's amazing to me that anybody presses play on, on this particular Daily Shot, but it's funny. I hear from enough people who swear by it like as if like it's more valuable to them than the other daily shots that I do just because they can't believe somebody's talking about pirates but I do it and I enjoy it every single day we'll be back Monday